And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And as you turn there, I want you to think about how there's certain seasons and certain times in your life where you become more reflective. You know, maybe it's on a birthday, anniversary, the beginning of a new year, and you begin to look back on the past season or the past year, and there's just kind of certain questions you ask as you think about it. You know, like what was the most memorable event from this past year? What was the most dramatic change we went through? Did I accomplish this thing I set out to accomplish? Did we travel anywhere? And then in this passage, what I think is going to happen for us is we actually get offered another set of questions that can shape how we think about what it means to live well. You know, in this passage, one of the questions that help us ask is when we look back on the past week or the past year or the past season, one question we often don't think is, how well did I show mercy? Was I merciful? Did I show mercy to someone this past week? How can I show more? I don't know if you've ever made a New Year's resolution. Uh, this hasn't ever made my list. How can I show more mercy to people this coming up here? And what we're going to see in this passage is how showing mercy is central, not just to who God is, but what he desires. Last week we saw that God desires to show mercy, and this week we're going to see how Jesus demonstrates that display of mercy. And so we have an amazing example in chapter 12 of Jesus' merciful ministry. And as we look at it, we want to lead to him, but we don't just see an example of someone showing mercy, but we fix our eyes on him, and we, we worship him because he is merciful and mighty. So this whole passage is going to point us to mercy, the, uh, the hunger of the disciples, mercy for the crippled man, and it will lead it to him. Because what we're going to see here, what Jesus does for this man, what he does for him physically, he wants to do for all of us spiritually. And in this story, we have this, this character with a withered hand. But if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we look out in the world and we're all withered in some way all wounded in some way. He has a withered hand, but in this room there's withered hearts, there's withered souls, there's hope that's withered, love that's withered, faith that's withered. What he wants to do is through the story of a helpless, withered hand, show us how he can bring hope to the helpless. So let's kind of look through the text, and then we'll ask, how does Jesus do this? So let's actually, let's pick up verse 1, and we're going to focus on 9 through 14. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some of the heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered into the house of God, and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or anyone else to do? but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. And there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, 
Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? And a person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was restored, as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. So just kind of setting up the context. Remember 11 and 12 as one unique unit? And in 11, we start to see this growing misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, even from his friends. When John the Baptist sends his disciples and says, are you the one to come or should we look for another? I mean, we thought you were going to lead or do things different than what you're doing. Are you really the one? And then John's disciples look at Jesus' disciples and say, wait a second. Like, we fast, but you guys don't fast. And they accuse Jesus of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. They misunderstand him. And in the towns where he's doing all these miracles, they're not responding the way you think they should. They're not repenting. And so this misunderstanding in chapter 11 now is morphing and growing into open antagonism and hostility and conflict. So chapter 12 is all about this context of how you deal with conflict. And the group of the Pharisees, we looked at them last week, but they're coming after Jesus in three different ways. And so what we're going to see here is that, um, or what I want us to see is that when Jesus comes into the synagogue on this Sabbath day, there's in essence two groups who, I don't really know how to frame it, uh, there's two groups who are withered. There's a man with a withered hand, and then there's a group with withered hearts, with withered souls. Their compassion is withered. And Jesus wants to heal both of them. But only one group leaves that day restored, healed. The other leaves harder and worse. And what I want to think about this morning is why? How does that happen? How, how does Jesus take what's withered and renew and restore it? Because that's what we want to experience. So let's walk through, and there's a couple of different things we'll see. We'll see first that Jesus sees, and then he confronts, and then he commands. And then they leave and conspire. So let's look first. How, how can the withered be made whole? The first thing you've got to see is that Jesus sees. And there's an interesting little phrase, moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. It's interesting. Why does Matthew in verse 9 say their synagogue? You know, I don't really know. But isn't it interesting? Who's, who does it belong to? There's a certain possessiveness where they think, no, this is... This is ours. You know, the synagogue was meant to be, it's God's. It's the, the, the locality where people can come into God's presence and, and study his word. It's meant to replicate, what, uh, to be a mirror reflection of the reality of the temple. But there's a strange possessiveness. Like, this is, this is theirs. He's not welcome here. They own it. And that possessiveness can seep into any, any entity but especially into churches. And often we can do it where we don't even mean to do it. You know, you can say, um, in some ways you can like describe, often think about like larger, maybe more well-known churches, even the way we can describe it. As, right, oh, that church in Atlanta, that's Andy Stanley's church. Or that church, that's Tim Keller's church. Or John Piper's church, where it actually gives a possessiveness. We, often we don't mean anything by it, but actually none of those churches belong to any of them. It's not their church. This is Jesus' church. 
The church is his bride, his body, their servants. But there are interesting like possessiveness there. He entered into their synagogue. And then there's a strange little phrase that the translators kind of wrestle. What do we do with? In verse 10, the CSB says, there he saw. First thing is he saw. But the ESV just says there was a man. Because there's a word, and it's just kind of stuck in the sentence, and it's the word edu, which is behold. Behold. A man with a withered hand. And it's kind of strange because it's like, you know, Greek is an inflected language. So an inflected language means you can take a verb and you can add on to the end of the verb, or the way you, you, you phrase it into the verb will tell you who it's referring to. So many languages that are inflected, you know, we need two words to say like, um, he saw, but that's very inefficient. So they can only use one word, and whether it's he saw, they saw, we saw, you saw, is all wrapped up in the, in the, in the way the verb uh, is inflected. But this is a strange word because it's just behold, but then there's no referent. It's like there's no he saw, he looked. There's no uh, there's no reference. So it's just what? Like what is this doing? You know, it's almost like if you happen to be at the mall this Friday and you walk into the mall of Millennium, somebody's standing out front and they say, Behold, the iPhone 13 is here. And you might say, what is going on? And say, well, I guess the new phones are in stock. You say, what's that a reference to? And so here you have this phrase, it's behold. But what are we supposed to look? And I actually think that CSB gives us a good angle. I actually think that, because the way it's set up, that it's a reference to Jesus seeing. Jesus is saying, look, look. It's a contrast in verse 1 and 2 where the Pharisees look to see the disciples taking grain. They're watching they're watching uh, who can they critique. And then here he's saying, who can I heal? Who needs to be healed? Uh, it says, behold, there comes into the synagogue, into the church, there comes in a man with a withered hand. And Jesus notices and he celebrates. It was kind of interesting to think about. Who could walk through that door where you would say, oh, look, look. You know, one of the kind of the cool things about just living in Lake Nona is you never know who you might see. One of our first weekends here, we were, I was at a uh, five-year-old YMCA soccer. It's not a match, I don't know what to call it. Soccer chaos. <laughs> and just standing there, and I looked next to me, and then looked, and I thought, wow, that's the greatest women's golfer ever lived, right there. This is Anna Sorenstam, this is 59, right here. Hello. It's kind of, it's kind of neat. Yeah, we've had kind of interesting, it's kind of fun, had a U.S. senator visit our church, a Ryder Cup captain, it's like, whoa, look. Like, who could walk in that door and he said, whoa, look, that's Donnie from New Kids on the Block, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> look. And what's interesting, notice who Jesus highlights, look. You know, we might not ever really wrestle with that problem, but uh, Charles Spurgeon, great British pastor, they kind of had this issue of, Celebrities wanting to sneak in and not be seen at his church. 1850s kind of rise, and he has a church on the south side of London, primarily in the poor and working class areas. But he was this, you know, this phenom. And so you have these different politicians. Um, I'm blanking on the prime minister's name at the point, but he would want to go and listen. And then you have these different celebrities who'd want to go, like these different actors who'd be amazed at this. 
person who can captivate an audience of 10,000 people just by the power of his voice, and they want to go, how did this happen? But they didn't want to be seen in that church. Do you know, it's you know, this weird evangelicals on the poor side of town, so they would dress up, and like literally not dress up like nice clothes, like costumes, so hopefully they wouldn't be noticed. And then there would be kind of a fun game of the congregation, because they'd always kind of be buzzing, like, oh, did you see them? Lord Beaverbrook was here this week. Oh. And here's something on this passage, Spurgeon, when he's preaching all this on Sunday night, he said, and tonight, dear friends, it matters very little to the preacher to the congregation that you are here, if you were some person of note or of consequence. For we make no note of dignitaries in this room, and we attach no special consequence to anyone in this place where the rich and the poor alike gather. Says, but if you happen to be here as a needy soul wanting a savior, if you happen to be here with a spiritually withered hand, so you cannot do the things that you would, and you're wanting to have that hand restored to you, then there is a behold for you. And if you happen to be here especially, maybe you'll hear that devilly emphatic, if tonight the master says to you, stretch out thy withered hand, and if the divine power shall restore that hand, and a deed of grace shall be yours. You are welcome. And so he says, he looks around, and that's our question. When Jesus looks, he says, whoa, look, there's a needy soul. There's someone who is need. There's someone wounded. There's someone weary. There's a heart that's withered. There's someone whose love has withered. There's a man whose faith is withered. There's someone whose hope is withered. Yes, I am glad you are here. Look. And what our Lord wanted Spurgeon goes on to say, what our Lord wanted on that particular Sabbath morning was somebody to work upon, somebody whom he might heal, and to, to defy the traditional legality of the Pharisees who said that it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. He didn't want their health that morning. He looked out for their sickness so he might illustrate his healing power. He didn't want any of their greatness, only their weakness, to display his power. And the same is true tonight in this room. The same is true this morning. Jesus doesn't come into the assembly saying, oh, look, look. He comes to the places where there are blind eyes and deaf ears and broken hearts and withered hands because those are the folks who need a Savior. So the first thing is he sees. He sees the ones who are weary and wounded and withered. But then notice how he confronts, because he's actually going to confront the ones who are going to keep the wounded man from him. Notice what it says in verse 10. There he saw a man with a, a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they confront him, and remember, you know, you've all had the experience where you're asked a question, but it's not a question. It's an accusation. This is what they're doing. They're accusing him. And the, the debate is over what's lawful. We can see this in that whole passage. Is it lawful in verse 2? Uh, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. Uh, verse 4, David did what's not lawful. Verse 10, is it lawful to heal? Verse 12, it's lawful to do what's good. Now, the word lawful has two connections. They're taking it back to the Old Testament law. So we could say, is it biblical? But then also, it's actually what's legal. So there are legal punishments for breaking the law. So say, is it lawful? Is it legal? Is it biblical? Is it right? And then notice the confrontation. You know, they want to accuse They've already determined and made up their mind that he is a threat and has to be dealt with. So first they accused his disciples. 
now they're going after him, confronting him. Now, I don't know, this whole chapter is all about conflict and kind of where you are on like the conflict omitter. If you're a person who tries to avoid conflict or you kind of relish it, run right into it. My kind of tendency is to be a conflict avoider. So I like to try and be a mediator whenever there's conflict. But I say, well, let's, let's come together and let's, you present your case, you present yours. I'm sure we can find some common ground. So let's just imagine that I am on Jesus' PR team. And he's asked, why we have this public crisis that's just flaring up. There's this public that's going, sorry, I want to, let's, let's huddle up, let's gather around, let's get a game plan for managing this crisis. So I tell you what, I, we'll draft a statement. And here I will draft a statement. You can, you can publish this statement. So this is a statement someone might draft for Jesus. So he could say something like, all right, we understand the conflict. I believe that it is biblical to treat emergency cases on the Sabbath. See, this is a question that Pharisees are looking for. Uh, you can treat an emergency case, but are you going to heal? Like, he could come back. This is not life or death. He could come back later and get healed. So, so I believe it's biblical to treat emergency cases on the Sabbath, but I believe all other cases out of reverence for God's word and the Sabbath can wait just a few hours more. So we'll placate the Pharisees, kind of deal with their... Uh, objections. My heart really breaks for this unfortunate situation and the difficulty that this has caused this, this man. But I love God more. I must obey his clear command. So please let me encourage you the, to come to my home immediately on sundown and there I will be happy to heal you at that moment. You think, why did Jesus do that? I mean, that would have smoothed out. I mean, the man would have been healed just a couple hours later. man would have been healed. Pharisees would not have been angry or upset. Why does he go that route? I mean, that's a win-win scenario, right? He, he hasn't read the seven habits of highly effective people. We've got to get the win-win. That's how we can win-win. And that's not what he does. Jesus actually, Mark and Luke give us other details. Luke tells us the man's right hand, so he'd been in great economic difficulty. Mark tells us that Jesus brought him right in the middle and almost just kind of called him out into the middle and made him the Pharisees force the reality. Why does he do it? You know, maybe one of the things he knows is they really don't care about that man. And they don't really care about the Sabbath either. Maybe he knows that their whole goal is just to attack. And I think one of the things he's going to do is force them to see the reality of their own um, contradictions. You know, they claim to be honoring the Sabbath, but what they're actually doing is profoundly dishonoring this man. And notice how Jesus confronts them. He uses common sense and gets them to take, use common sense to reason theologically. You know what I love in the first section, he takes them back to the Bible. Have you not read? Have you not read the Bible? But then here he says, just he just uses common sense. He says, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Who among you? This is a phrase that Jesus loves to use when the answer is, okay, no one. Like, who among you can add one hour to their life by worry? Nobody. Who among you would give to their child a snake if they asked for bread? Nobody. Who among you, it's very interesting, who among you, talking to the Pharisee, who among you would not lift up that sheep out of the pit on the Sabbath? Now, it's interesting because sheep, we don't have singular or plural. You, you literally could translate it one little lamb. One little lamb. 
You just have. This is the, all, all you have economically. This isn't like your pet, where you love to pet. And, you know, good little sheep. This is, this is your only hope and your sustenance economic. Like, this is your, your, your savings account. This is an economic term. You have one little lamb, and it falls into a hole. You're not going to get it out. Who among you wouldn't do that? And actually, what he's doing is forcing them to face their own contradic- uh, contradictions. And actually, Jesus says in verse 12 a statement that in their day and in ours is actually pretty... He just assumes everybody knows this. But I wonder, can we still assume that everyone knows this? A person is worth more than sheep. This might be shocking for you to hear. People are more valuable than animals. Now, it's actually interesting worth thinking about because Jesus has an interesting pers- it'd be an interesting study to do Jesus' theology of pets. You know, very important topic in our house. Like, what's going to happen to pets when they die? But theology of pets, you don't think how often Jesus uses animals, so he, you know, he's already said that your heavenly father feeds the birds of the air. Your heavenly father knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows, he cares. Even in the original Sabbath command in Exodus 21, part of the command is everyone gets the day off, even the animals, because you have to care for them. And then when God sends Jonah into Nineveh and they repent, and God says, should I not care about them? There's 150,000 people who don't know their right hand from the left, and then there's all these animals who are being exploited. So he cares about them. But then maybe the shocking thing for us is that people are more valuable than they are. You know, this is where the value is where we get the value of life. You know, as Christians, we believe that every life is valuable because we're made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter if you're just an economic producer that gives you your value, or it doesn't matter what your race or ethnicity is as a thing to give you your value. Or it doesn't matter if you're wanted by the people who brought you into this life. That's not where your value comes. All of our value comes from being made in his image. So he said, well, isn't this person more valuable? So just think about your own contradictions. How much do you love that animal? Shouldn't you at least love this person on the same level as you do that animal? And if you think about it, we're all this way in some ways. And our running joke is there's people in our neighborhood that we know their dog's name, but can't remember their name. Like, why can't we remember the dog's name and not their name? But you think about all the different forces in our world that dehumanize people, where we allow some other priority to supersede our care for the person. I mean, you can see that in any kind of bureaucratic institution. It just kind of happens where policies can like supersede or trump you know, care for people. You can see it, I think what's happening in verse 1 is that the landowners or the disciples are grabbing the grain. I think they care more about their property than they do those people. Here, I think he's showing how they care more about their economics, their wealth, than they do those people. What do we allow to supersede our care for others? Jesus is not going to allow them. He's going to confront them. But then notice what he does in the next verse is he commands. This is so interesting. Have you noticed how often when Jesus heals... The way he heals is he commands the person he's going to heal to do the very thing they cannot do. Stretch out your hand. Why does he ask them to do that? You know, in so many ways, what he asks them to do, the thing that for them is physically impossible. 
And I wonder if there was a moment where that man just thought, uh, stretch out my hand, like, how do you know? Maybe he had spent his whole life hiding. It was covered under a cloak. How do you know it's withered? Stretch out your hand. Yeah, thanks a lot. That's the one thing I can't do. If I could do that, maybe I wouldn't be here. And so often, like, the front line of faith is you're being asked to do the very thing you can't do. Or maybe the very thing you feel most self-conscious about. It's interesting. Why does Jesus force him to expose, to bring to him, the very thing that's caused him so much shame in his life, caused him so much difficulty. He forces him to bring to him the very thing that he's been hiding for most of his life. So what have you been hiding? What do you hide from him? What fears do you hide? What doubts do you hide? Healing often comes when we bring to him those things that we are hiding. What do you do with the things that cause you shame? If you're going to find his healing power, he beckons you to bring them into his presence. And you know, for some people like this man, kind of the weakness is obvious. It's a physical weakness, so it's obvious. But for many others, the weakness is something that's not quite as obvious. You know, think about what situation in your life do you feel like right now you're being asked to do what's impossible. You know, maybe you got a new job and you got placed in a position of kind of influence and power and you realize you were brought in this job to clean up a certain mess and so your job is to be an agent of change. And then you actually get into the job and realize how difficult it's going to be because everyone says they want change, but nobody does. Because change is painful and nobody wants pain. And so, no, no, I'm being asked to do the impossible. Not only the impossible, I'm being asked to do the very thing that people actually don't Want. Maybe you feel like you're in a situation, a relationship, maybe it was family or some relationship situation where you feel like I'm being asked to do the impossible. You know, what do you do? Maybe you become the scapegoat in a certain situation where people are projecting onto you all their frustrations and failures and think, I can't bear this. I shouldn't take this blame. What do you do with the things that feel impossible? What I love here is Jesus asked him to do the impossible. Bring me, bring him the impossible, and then he empowers him to do it. That man, the healing comes through obedience. And notice, you know, the Pharisees are very upset because they think Jesus is going to work on the Sabbath. And I guess their conception of healing, and any normal person, the conception of healing is work. Like it's tremendous work to bring healing. I don't know what they thought he was going to do. He's got a shriveled hand, so maybe he's going to say, all right. I gather around, um, you go get the biggest root, you start bullying that, let me rub together a couple things to get the right, you know, I don't know what they thought he was going to do to heal them. But notice all he did was speak. The power of his word. The word so powerful that it creates, it generates life. The generative power of the word that can bring life is through his spoken word. And one of the great differences between us and God is that it's the power of God's word that brings life. It's generative. And it's one of Satan's great temptations and lies, even to Adam and Eve in the garden, is that you can be like God. In this way, no, you can't. So there's just certain things where we think, all right, if we just name it and claim it, we can make these things happen. Or if we just send out positive thoughts into the universe, it will materialize. We don't have generative power with our words. 
couple weeks ago, I was listening and I heard my three-year-old son, he was getting pretty frustrated in his room. So I went in there and I saw he had all these dinosaurs lined up. And he was standing over there and he was going, speak! Speak! Ugh, speak! And I said, what's the matter, buddy? You get frustrated. He's like, ah, oh, they're not obeying. Yeah, it's really frustrating when you tell something to do something and they don't obey. And he wanted his dinosaurs to speak. And I'm actually really thankful that he doesn't have the generative power in his words. I don't know if I want 30 minutes of dinosaurs running around biting my toes in our house. We don't have that kind of power. But here Jesus is, is just by the power of his word. And can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that scene? Can you imagine? He comes into the middle. Hand has been hidden. Jesus calls for it out, and the shriveled hand comes forward. And then you start to see the blood begin to flow, and then you begin to see the nerves like gaining power, and the, the gnarled, wrinkled hand begins to open up like a sunflower to the sun, and life starts coursing through the hand. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like, what would it have been like for that man who this object of weakness and shame his entire life, all of a sudden, it's doing the very thing that he had wanted it to do his entire life and never could. He said, look, look, look. Like, would his wife have broken all decorum and ran across the room and started shouting? Would his kids, kids broken all decorum and said, look, daddy, daddy. And what did he grab for the first time with his renewed hand? I mean, did he take his wife's face in his hands? Did he grab his children for the first time? Can you imagine what that scene would have been like? And how would you have responded if you were watching that? You know, one of the things that always moves Cynthia that can get her to tears in a moment is, you know, you see the scenes on television where you have like a, you know, it's like a little child and he's at a birthday party and he's blindfolded and he's like hitting a pinata. And then he turns around and he whacks something and they take off and it's his dad. You know, his dad's been away in the military and he's brought back. And then you just see, it's one of the few things of just kind of sheer explosive delight. And can you imagine what it would be like to be in a scenario like that? How would you respond? Now, can you imagine how hard, like how hard of a heart would you have to have if you saw a child being restored to his, let's say, his father, and then you responded, well, I'm angry. I wish your dad would have died over there. How hard would your heart have to be? Look at verse 14. How did they respond? This man is restored and renewed. But the Pharisees went out, and they plotted against him how they might kill him. What a response. Can you imagine? They go out and they conspire. And their critique of Jesus is that he's working on the Sabbath, and I don't know uh, all of the technicalities of their legal code, but I wonder if conspiracy for murder is considered working on the Sabbath. And they go out and they conspire to kill him. And one of the things you see here is that you know, the image of salvation is that God is offering us an outstretched hand. You know, in the Exodus, it's with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. He redeems you. But they then go out and they start to conspire against him. And they're actually going to be successful in their conspiracy. They're going to be, in about a year and a half, successful in their plot. And we fast forward to 
uh, another day before Sabbath, where they conspire against him. They get others to come in, and then it won't be Jesus who's giving the command to stretch out your hand. It'll be a Roman soldier who's commanding him, stretch out your hand. And it won't be healing and restoration that comes to it. It'll be a nail that's piercing and pinning that hand to a wooden beam. And then they will succeed. And they will lay him down on that Saturday, that Sabbath. Jesus will enter into the ultimate darkness, the rest of death. And what he's going to do and what we'll see is that in essence, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. But it will be through his sacrifice that all of us can find mercy. So in this passage, what we see is not just an example of Christ displaying mercy. Our eyes can look at him and worship him because he is the merciful God. This whole thing points us to his mercy. Mercy for hungry disciples, mercy for this crippled man. And it leads us to him, the one who's greater than David, the one who's greater than the temple, the one who's the Lord of the Sabbath, and the one who displays God's mercy, both merciful and mighty. And what he did for that crippled man as a manifestation of his mercy, he wants to do for us all. Whether we see it or not, we're all wounded, all withered in some way. And the healing power that he showed so long ago the same power that he offers to us this morning. And it's the same that comes by way of the cross. And each week when we celebrate communion, we're reminding ourselves and we're celebrating this pathway that his holy mercy comes to us. To our great, gracious God the Father, in his infinite love, he made us for himself. And when we have sinned against him and we've become subject to all of the distortions and the twisting and the death that sin brings in his mercy. He sent his only son into the world for our salvation and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, his son became flesh and dwelled among us. And then in obedience to his father's will, he stretched out his hands on the cross and he offered himself once and for all so that by his mercy, we might be saved. And then on his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death and hell and Satan trampled them underneath his feet. Then he ascended to his father's right hand and now with that same hand, he stretched us out to us and says, come, come to me, all you who are weary and laden. So the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this and remember to me. And likewise, after the supper, he took the cup and he had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink to all of them, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you, for the gift forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, remember to me. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for your tremendous mercy. We confess to you that we are weak and weary, and we praise you for the promise that you can renew and restore all things. So I pray for anyone who's come in this into this room this morning and they literally have a withered hand or withered leg or withered something where they want healing. We pray that you would, you would heal them. Pray for anyone who's come in the room and they recognize that their, their, their hearts been withered and their compassion's been withered, their hope. We pray that you would restore their hope. Maybe someone's come in and their faith has been 
rock that's been withered and ready to restore it. Their love for maybe a certain person in their life or love for others is withered, we pray that you would restore it. And then once you restore it, we pray that you would give us eyes to see those who are wounded, those who are weary, and help make us instruments of your mercy into our world and our life. Know this, we ask you, Holy